Mike Kissarm. Welcome to the Kiss FAQ Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time today. Nothing is into your head. I hope you don't do any damage. This is a Kiss-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope that you enjoy. Alright, five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to episode 178 of the Kiss FAQ Podcast. I'm your host today, Julian Gill. I am joined by 69th Blizzard, Ken. Hey, hey. Marcus Almighty, Mark. Greetings, sir. And St. Louis Kiss, Lonnie. Gentlemen, welcome back. It's been a few, well, it's been a couple of weeks since we did our last show, even though there have been some episodes up since then. Um, before we get into today's topic, uh, just do a... You know, a little bit of news. What are your thoughts on Bronx Boy, the new single by Ace Frehley that came out on his birthday, which was the day after our last episode together? Uh, Mark, let's start with you. Um, actually, I liked it. I think it's pretty good. Um, not the worst song I've ever heard from Ace. The only thing that I have kind of a, a comment about is I just find that the production of his stuff lately has been a little hot. I I don't know if I'm the only one who thinks that, but it seems again like it's a little smashed that final master a bit. But other than that, the song sounds good. I think the writing is good. The, I like the lyrical content for once. It's not about spaceships or anything like that, so it's all good. Zip guns and he doesn't like toys. So yeah, Ken, what are, what are your take on the uh, the new song? Yeah, I've listened. I haven't overdone it or anything, so I listened to it twice. Uh, first time was I was like uh, okay, and second time, so far the second time was a lot better than the first time. So usually, like I said, it it takes three times to really get a good feel for it. So I haven't listened to it for the third time yet, but I probably will here soon. But it was it was all right. It was all right. Love the guitar riff at the beginning, and you know, it, just a really good kind of standard A song. Hard times part six, or you know. Dirty Living Part mm-hmm. Three, um, so I, I like it enough. I think I, I agree with Mark. The production um, on the lead guitar, the rhythm track underneath, is all fine, but uh, there's just something. The separation is a little bit like tinny in my ears. And but there you go. I'm not a producer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fine. You know, I you know it was worth what yeah. I paid for it. It's free on YouTube as well. So Lonnie, what's your take on it? I enjoyed it. I mean, it was a it was a good surprise on a Friday morning. That I get in the car and I'm. I'm getting ready to go to the gym, and I was like, oh, new Ace Frehley song. I'll download that for my drive-in this morning, you know? Listen to it a couple times on the way there. Um, Listen to it a few times since. So I, I enjoyed it. It was a it was a great surprise. Um, the more stuff I can get from, from Ace Frehley or any present or past member of KISS, the better. So... I, I, and, not, and not just like, I'm not the kind of guy who just loves everything that any member of the band puts out, but I, I did enjoy it, and I'm looking forward to the whole album. Well, there was no backbone slippage in the song, so it's uh, that's, 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 that's a good thing. All right, let's let's move on to our weekly uh, Kisperiences or whatever we want. We got to come up with a name for it. That just does not work. I can barely say. Yeah, it. it's not working. Uh, yeah. You know, what shit have you listened to, watched, bought, or sold for that matter uh, in the last since the last show? I'll start off. I picked up a 
August 77 copy of Circus, just because it's nice. got an uh, interview where they're talking about the solo albums very early before it became reality. Also had a couple of good ads in it, so, you know, that's, that's the only thing I've added this week. Actually, a copy of 1974 copy of Billboard came in today, but I haven't had a chance to see why I bought it yet. So, Mark, what about you? Well, um, I got two things. One I bought, and the other thing I just actually found online, which I thought was really cool, but I'll show you what I bought first. Again, in my attempts to further my foreign country pressings, I got Dress to Kill, but this one is a French one. Oh, a Vogue pressing. Very nice. And uh, not, not as exciting, but still a foreign one as I have a uh, Hotter Than Hell, but this one is a West German one. Nice phonogram issue. Cool. And now the, the other thing that I, that I found, though, which is kind of cool, is I was looking around for some stuff from Casablanca, like just to research some of the history of it. And I found online a template for a like letterhead. So I downloaded it for myself, and I have it now as my blank paper that I use to write stuff on. Mm. Your own letterhead. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. I found it. I figured I made a couple dozen copies, and I do my podcasting notes on it. Well, whatever floats your boat. Lonnie, what about you? <laughs> well, see, as I'm living in a halfway house right now, it's hard for me to bring in items. So, but one thing I did, I did sell a damaged copy of, of Destroyer Red on vinyl, and I got what I paid for back, which was nice. But one thing I did buy this week I haven't received yet, and it's something I think we should get into on a future episode. Um, and that is I bought a copy of Appetite for Destruction um, of the new box set. And, oh, I okay. think that's, and I think that's something that I think we should discuss on a further on a future episode is how Guns did their classic album in a box set and how we think Kiss could um replicate something like that and i've heard many people comparing the appetite box set to the vault which is is not a fair comparison in my opinion because excellent slash aren't handing these suckers out um it's not demos from all of excellent slash's career it's really an unfair comparison people were making that comparison online last week oh it seems like guns just copied the vault it's not a copy of the vault at all well, you know, it's a thousand dollars. You know, box sets are expensive. <laughs> you know, I, I've yeah. never never come across a cheap box set in my entire life. So, and if you see what you get in it, it's quite a lot of stuff. Exactly. So, that's that's one thing I bought this week. So, we, we can do a future episode on um, box set comparisons or what we would like to see in a, sure. in a Kiss box set of of a classic album if Kiss could do something. Um parallel to that so ilani is like showering the money there right yeah it, it rains money at my house let me tell you <laughs> so uh, which version of the guns box did you purchase put that out of okay out of speculation. Yeah, just just, just make make sure that uh, your, your wife knows that you did not get the thousand dollar one because <laughs> you're sitting right here live and, we, and, we, we, as, don't as, need, as we don't need we don't need a murder on screen here i can tell you this as I'm doing this show live from my in-laws' house, 
I did not buy the one thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that would have been the best decision in the world. No. <laughs> All right, Ken, what about you? What have you added into your collection in the past? All right, yeah. Yeah, I haven't been getting a lot well other than that destroyer one one that we, you mentioned earlier there, um, Lonnie. But uh I did get a another Kiss album that uh here it is. Hot in the shade, one our favorites. But uh, this is uh also I think West Germany. Has the altered logo. Um and it's on the Vertigo label. The, the main reason I got it was because of the kind of like the you know what is it? This the spaceship. I like this la- I like this label, so that's the main reason I, I got it. I didn't have one of these vertigos um with that label. So otherwise I haven't even you know, I haven't played it yet or anything, but uh yeah, I'll see how it sounds. It looks pretty clean, so happy with that. All right, so those are some recent additions. Uh, what other news? I, I don't think there's anything going on. Uh, the Indie Expo is this weekend. I'm flying in tomorrow. Can't wait for it. It's going to be an exciting time. Stop by the Kissefic U table. I've packed about 50 pounds of vinyl, which is uh, pretty much the last of what I've got to get rid of, and it is priced to go as uh, I don't want to bring it back with me. So. Let's see if I can get rid of all those things that I no longer need. Boo-hoo. Um, but looking forward to the musical performances. Four by Fate's now announced to be uh, performing. Now, obviously, that's a nice segue into today's topic, which is the Kiss FAQ Michael James Jackson interview. I was, um, you know, I'd like to thank Keith LaRue for reaching out and connecting me with Michael to finally be able to talk to him directly and, uh, ask some of those questions that I've always wanted to ask him. And I had been refraining from listening to any of the other podcasts about, uh, you know, what they've asked him. I wanted to go in completely clean and um, kind of just go from what I wanted to ask, not knowing of whether it was going to be something that he could recall well, something that he could not recall well. Um, So I had no preparation other than the research I did uh, into what I wanted to talk with him about. So I, I say without further ado, let's just roll that interview and we'll be back to talk about it after the end of it. So enjoy. Uh, you know, first of all, thank you very much for uh, giving the KISS FAQ and myself time to talk about your career and working, obviously, with KISS primarily. Um, as, as a starting point, prior to KISS, you'd worked with the likes of Patty Dahlstrom, Paul Williams, Pablo Cruz, Steve Harley, and immediately prior, uh, Jesse Colin Young. How did you enter the world of production rather than uh, any other aspects of the business? Those were the years when uh, we were all pretty young and curious. I mean, really young. I think I was 23, 24. I took a job at Electric Record as a stock boy. And, uh, I had no problem doing that in terms of what the job was, but I found that there was this other room there that people stayed in in that room until three, four in the morning, staggered out, and uh, some weeks after that, a record was produced, and that somehow this mysterious event took place in this very large, very locked-up room. I became fascinated with the studio and what went on in there. And there were some quite brilliant recording engineers who I learned from, and I had a million questions, and I always loved music. So 
it seemed to be a natural event, one thing followed another. And after a while, I was allowed to kind of hang out in the studio. And I just learned. But it wasn't as if I woke up one morning and said, I really want to be a record producer. These were the days in the 70s where things evolved. It was kind of like the Wild West. And had I wanted to be a, like an executive who was more serious about the business itself, I probably could have followed that path. But I did I just thought it was fascinating being in the studio, and I loved the people, and it was so incredibly creative, it really seduced me. So that's one part of it, I suppose. Another part, I'm realizing as I speak, that I left Electra after about a year and was hired to work with A&M. I was hired to be the administrator of the A&R department, so I monitored the recording costs that the company was doing each week. At the same time, I was auditioning people, three, four people a day. And uh, I eventually got so opinionated, I thought I must know what I'm, what I'm doing and I should be ready to actually produce a record. So the first record I did was Mimi Farina and Tom Jan. They were a folk duo. And I think A&M gave me them because uh, it seemed pretty safe at the time. And I booked the finest musicians I could find, and I had this incredible engineer, Henry Louie, who was Joni Mitchell's engineer. And I had this thought that everything would be just fine, but I didn't realize it was quite different having opinions about something you were listening to when you were in an office. And then when you were in the studio and the musicians came in and into the control room and asked you what you thought. Uh, because when they did, I realized I didn't know what I thought. I didn't know what was good about it or what was bad about it. But uh, Henry Louis really kind of saved my ass and would say, you know, Michael, that bass drum part in the chorus is a little busy, isn't it? I'd go, yes, exactly, the bass drum part in the chorus. And he mentored me and kind of taught me what I should listen for. And uh, moment by moment, things add up and you kind of learn. So it was, I was on a major learning curve. I don't think anybody does it any other way. Right. So Henry Lou, he was an engineer, right? So you're, you're kind of, I guess, your, your background from self-taught, essentially, was being guided from an engineering point of view as a producer. Would that be a, cr- a correct kind of a, analogy as to, as to where your production viewpoint came from, from the engineering side? Uh, that would be a little too limiting to say that because my experience was really kind of double-barreled. I was around a lot of creative people, particularly the guy who ran the A&R department at A&M. His name was Chuck Kay. And he, he ran A&R and he also ran publishing. But he was one of those very instinctive animals. That when he heard a particular a song that gave him a certain kind of experience, he had great instincts about choosing his songs, great instincts about choosing artists. And uh, his influence was very, it was a very strong one on me, for which I've always been very grateful. So I was around a lot of great engineers, and yes, I was very interested in learning what microphone did this and what microphone did that. Because uh, a lot of these guys were really artists themselves. Uh, it was not a mechanical job they had. But in terms of production, I, I was immersed in the business. And I was around it every day and around immensely talented people. 
and I tried to learn as much as I could from all of them. So I couldn't really say that I, I approached production from an engineering point of view, but uh, engineering and microphones and audio was sonically incredibly important to me. That, that was a fascinating description of entering the music business as a youth, you know, prior to, you know, your your first kind of experience um, in, in the business. What were your musical interests that drove you kind of to be, you know, number one, interested in the magic that happened in the studio? I mean, where were you coming from as as a person interested in music? Did Had you had any experience playing any instruments or any interest in bands as a youth that uh, kind of helped push you in that direction? I, I love music. Music was a big part of my life, as it was with everyone during those years. I played some flamenco guitar, and I had studied a bit in Spain when I was there. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes things happen by accident and sometimes they happen by specific design in this environment today. I don't think very much happens by accident. I could be wrong, but I think that, uh, when young people go out and they want to pursue a specific area or direction, it's very much by design and they work within the parameters of what they've got to do to to move ahead. In my experience, with what I'm describing, it's kind of like a series of voluntary accidents that occurred that uh, offered opportunity, and some of those opportunities I took, and they led me to where they led me. Um, like I said, I, I'm not sure anybody wakes up and says, I want to be a record producer, and then tries to figure out how they can do that. That probably exists much more so today than it did then. It was the Wild West. It was a it, it was a great moment in time. And uh, uh, I mean, for example, I was really interested in being a writer. So the job I was looking for was that of being a copywriter. So I'll tell you a very quick story. Even before Electra, I showed up at A and M Records in my little battered Volkswagen at the time. And there was a guard there, and he said, who are you? And I said, I'm looking for a job. How do I apply? And he said, uh, you've got to turn around and uh, leave. This is not how you do this. And suddenly, like a limo pulled up behind me, and it could have been Jerry Moss, who was the president of the company, or Herb Albert, and he had to get the limo in. So he said, just drive in, turn around, and we get this limo in, and we'll drive out right away. So I drove as far away from him as I could, and I parked the car. I jumped out of the car with three chapters of a novel that I was writing and a handful of poetry, and I ran up some stairs. I wound up in front of somebody's office, a woman who had this huge office. She turned out to be the controller, the controller of the, the company. She said, who are you? I said, my name is Michael, and I'm looking for a job. He said, well, this is not how you do this. You have to leave. How do you get in? I told her the story. And she said, uh, do you have any experience? And I said, no, I don't have any experience. She said, how do you expect to get, how do you expect to get a job without experience? I said, how do you get experience without a job? <laughs> she, she seemed to kind of like that. And she said, okay, here's what I'll do. I'm going to call somebody in the art department. You say you want to be a copywriter, copywriter, and there I was clutching my first three chapters and all that, 
and she sent me over to the art department, and I met some guy, and uh, unbelievably, I, for some reason, he, I, who knows why, he gave me a job that I got $50 for, for writing a little radio, little radio commercial for a, a group that was called Brewer and Shipley on a and it was a, another duo, and I wrote a uh, radio commercial. One thing led to another, and I started to actually get freelance work, and I was writing liner notes on the backs of albums, and then eventually that slowed down, and I just needed something that was interlinked, and that was when I wound up at Electric Records, but I wasn't quite sure what I was gambling on, because the first day that I showed up for work at Electra, there was a little courtyard there that you had to pass through to get to the front door, and laying in the bushes appeared to be a homeless person who was dead. Uh, he just was laying face down. It had rained in the course of the night. He was spattered with mud. There was a bottle of Jack Daniels nearby that was empty on the ground. He was gone. I ran into the building. I said to the woman, there's a dead person outside. You've got to call the police. She said, just sit down and stay calm. I said, no, no. There was somebody out there, and he's dead, and he's got to call the police. He said, you should really sit down. That's Mr. Morrison. <laughs> he, had a he had a difficult time in the studio last night. And when that happens, if he decides to spend the night, we just don't bother him. And as she's talking, the bushes outside the window start shaking as the zombie-like figure stands up, brushes himself off, and staggers out of the courtyard into the street. That was my real introduction to the insanity of the music business and just how crazy a place it was. So my entry into the music business was not exactly a planned event and was not a carefully crafted uh, moment, shall we say. Oh, that's so, absolutely brilliant to have a Jim Morrison moment like that. That's uh, one of the best rock and roll stories I think I've heard in a long time. I, I, I can't begin to describe how dead I thought this guy was, especially because it had rained in the course of the night and he was covered with stuff and looked like, you know, uh, they, sh they shouldn't bother with an ending. So it was pretty wild. That, that's fantastic. Looking, uh, you know, through the, the work, the body of work that you did in the 1970s, obviously you've mentioned Mimi Freen and Tom Jans, but, you know, there was Paul Williams, uh, Pablo Cruz, yeah. And so we don't get bogged down in in, in too much of the, the non-KISS stuff. Um, by 1981, you're working with Jesse Colin Young. I, he was uh, yep. another, I, I guess, a, a vastly different kind of genre from what KISS is known for. Um, you know, were there any of these acts that you were working with specifically that you would say, you know, working with this person or act really helped me when it came time to work with a band like KISS? I can't really attach that to any one of them. But what I will say is this. For me, and everybody's different, anybody who produces or has produced records knows that you know, no matter how well you plan things, when the artist walks through that studio door and goes out and plays, it doesn't always work out the way that you thought it was going to, which means that it's an ongoing process of crafting and recrafting what you're doing. I learned something from every one of the artists that I work with. 
and I learned something from each one of those records. But one of the biggest things, I guess, overall, was I learned this idea that I wound up with at the end of the day, which is, and I've mentioned this before in some previous interviews, that I, I really feel like, you know, particularly with music, you want to be moved by something. And whether it's a screenwriter or a film director or a record producer, there's a certain conceit. It's a conceit that everyone operates on that if it moves me, I'm willing to gamble that it's going to move you. That becomes part of your decision-making process. So by the time that I was working with KISS, I'd made a number of records, and I had learned a lot. But being moved by something that Gene and Paul were doing or the band was was playing on that level is no different than being affected by what somebody else was doing. In all the records I did, there were certain moments that were fantastic for me that I had enormous gratitude for, uh, including Gene and Paul and Kiss. So, so let's get into 1981-82. So you're finishing work with uh, Jesse. What do you recall about being approached to work on a KISS project? How, how did that approach uh, take place, uh, to the best of your recollection? Uh, my attorney um, was also representing Diana Ross, who was represented by a business manager in New York called Howard Mark, named Howard Marks. And somehow, whatever problems KISS was having or their search to figure out what they should do next, how they should go about it, rather, uh, somehow he brought up my name. And I guess I had some reputation as being a song-oriented producer. So I guess that struck a chord and seemed like perhaps that would be very helpful to them at that time. And so the introduction was then made, and I was, you're right, at that time I was just was finishing up Jesse Colin Young, uh, who was light years away as an artist from KISS in terms of the kind of music that he did. So on the surface, it may have looked like an odd pairing, and it was. But at the heart of it all, uh, there was some kind of a, something that was, relational between me, Gene, and Paul and what they needed and what I could offer. And uh, that's kind of how it started. So did it seem like strange bedfellows? Sure. Uh, but there was a lot more to the relationship and the possibility for the relationship than that. So that's probably the best way that I could answer that. What was your awareness level of KISS? I mean, obviously you're working in the business. I'm, I'm sure you're, you're aware of what's going on musically throughout the 1970s. But, uh, you know, how aware of them or interested in their career were you at all? You know, or, or was it just on a professional basis? Oh, that's interesting. It was on a professional basis, and that's interesting. And that was pretty much what I always thought of them. But um, Creatures was a complicated record in that there was a mission that was attached to it, and that was to clearly redefine the band for the fans after The Elder. And that was an exciting proposition. And that was a great moment in time, uh, because all of us felt it, and all of us uh, really played a role in that responsibility. What made you say yes to working with 
you know, Kiss, did you see it as a fresh challenge uh, or a new way to break into maybe different areas of production, working with different groups? What was it that really appealed to you on the most basic level that made you go for it? Um, I think every one of the things that you just mentioned, it was so dramatically different than anything I had done. They needed some help, I felt, in terms of the song area and um, uh, that I was able to bring some some ammunition there for that. And uh, and I like Gene and Paul personally. We had good communication right from the start. Did you have a formal interview with uh, Gene and Paul and Bill O'Coyne? and anyone else as you sat down, you know, and the offers made? Um, yeah, I had a breakfast with Gene and a lunch with Paul. And then uh, after that, I flew to New York and met with them in New York and with Bill Coin And I had met with Bill in Los Angeles as well. I like Bill a lot because Bill was uh, devoted to Gene and Paul. And uh, our was such a creative individual. He had a great imagination and he knew how to really turn that into something tangible for the band. So I thought he, he was very special. Absolutely. He took them from nowhere to somewhere, didn't he? he going back to 1973. Uh, did they all seem united in, in what they wanted to accomplish on the next recording project with you? You know, you mentioned that you have a lunch with Paul, a separate meeting with Gene. Um, were they all coming from the same direction in, in their vetting you, or did they have different things they wanted to accomplish? I think uh, all things are true in that case. I think both things are true. But the one thing that unified everyone was the importance of creatures and the role that that record would or could play in what happened next with the band. So, yeah, it was a very interesting time. It was a critical record. It was a great experience being a part of it. Yeah, I'm curious, because you come in, you know, very soon after, pretty much very soon after The Elder's released, and it's clear that the album's not going to do well, uh, did you ever listen to any of their back catalog in preparation for meeting with them, or as you started uh, to think about working with them? Um, of course. Listen to Alive and Destroyer, and, you know, I, I mean, I had a sense of what they were doing, and where they were coming from, and uh, uh, the main thing, the main question was, what's next? What's going to let the fans know that Kiss is you know, really on the mark, and um, how do we do that? And so, one of the reasons why Creatures was so important it was it's kind of pivotal in a sense that it's, I think, reinforced what the statement the bands had already made about themselves. I, I'm going to go into the uh, Behind the Mask book briefly. Uh, Bob Kulik was actually interviewed in that book, and he described Gene and Paul as being involved in a huge tug-of-war uh, around this time about the direction of the band. And I think you mentioned as well that Gene had not been so receptive to the idea of an outside producer. As an outsider coming in, to their environment, did you perceive any tug of war? Or once Gene and Paul were both on board, was it essentially uh, smooth sailing? You know, in any creative process between more than one person and himself, sometimes even then too, uh, it's always a tug of war. People have different reactions, feelings, points of view. 
Jane and Paul had a lot of history together, uh, and there were certainly things that they didn't agree about. So one of the roles that I think I played was to be able to mediate some of that and act as the person in the middle, um, which took some of the pressure off for each one of them, I think. Um, but yeah, I think Bob's right. There, there was a tug of war going on at different times and sometimes more than others. Um, but Creatures became kind of a, I also think the Creatures was kind of a cleansing process for, for a lot of that. But what may have been difference of opinions uh, kind of manifested itself in Creatures as really being uh, a clear direction and a clear statement by the band for the fans as to really who they were. And make no mistake about it, this is KISS. So sometimes the end result really justifies the means. I've got some memos, you know, from very early on, from March the 2nd, 1982. And this is, before, I think, right around the time the the work really would have been starting um, for the KISS Killers tracks. Do you recall anything about Bill O'Coin sending you a demo for a song for the Pirate movie? Um which was a basically a, a reimagining of uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, Pirates of Penzance, that uh, was being put into production. You're CC'd on the memo. That's the only reason I ask. <laughs> you guys are you're fantastic. You know, it, it's like the CIA. <laughs> I don't know where you where you get this stuff. It's so incredible. Um, I would like to say that I remember that clearly. I honestly don't. It was 30-some, 300 years ago kind of thing. Uh, uh, it's very likely that Bill would have done that and would have copied me on it, since I think Bill was hoping that I would infuse the band with some new energy and perspective, maybe. I can't particularly say that I remember that memo or exactly could easily have happened then I'm just not yeah I, I think your memory is about as good as how memorable that movie was uh, it did not stick in anyone's memory so the record plant in Los Angeles was chosen as the studio for recording the tracks that would be used on Kiss Killers uh, what led to that studio being chosen did you have any input in that oh of course uh, I always chose the studios they uh they were very user-friendly and very willing. They wanted the project there, and they were willing to do whatever we needed to make that happen. And um, I had recorded the record plant before a number of times, and they were good people. I mean, there's a lot of great studios in Los Angeles. Uh, Sunset Sound, Ocean Way, Record One. I wound up doing the tracks for Creatures at Record One. But the record plant was... You know, historically a great place, and uh, they were so made such an effort to try and persuade us to come there. So worked out well. In terms of pre-production for the four, uh, you, you you essentially recorded four tracks that would be used on the Kiss Killers European compilation. Uh, about how much time was spent in pre-production, and was that at SIR that you that the band rehearsed that material? You're, you're tapping into a part of my memory that uh, is a little vague at this point. We we did do rehearsals at SIR, 
um, at different times. I can't swear that it was for that particular moment, but of course there was preparation for it and rehearsal. Was it specified by phonogram by that point or Casablanca that only four tracks were required for the EP or was that simply the best of the material that was uh, immediately available to you to record? You know, I mean, to be honest, I, I really don't recall. Um, and I think that what was needed in terms of quantity of songs was well known even before I got there, even even before Gene and Paul and I agreed to work together. Whether it was three songs or four songs or five songs, I just think that number was already known. That the goal was clear, so I think that everybody knew that going into. So then, from that from that aspect of things, if they already knew, you didn't have um, any role in choosing the material that was recorded for Killers. No, they knew. They, what I was meaning was, they knew that they knew they needed four songs. I'm pretty sure, anyway, as I recall. Once again, it's a very long time ago. I'm pretty sure that they knew that they wanted four songs on the record, and that was the starting point. But yeah, no, of course, that was one of the reasons I was there was to to help uh, choose the material. Is there sure. any particular reason why they ended up being all Paul Stanley uh, compositions? No, but just as a matter of conjecture, I would imagine because Paul's songs were the best songs at the time. That's the only reason that I could really give you. There was nothing political about it. There was no dark. There's no dark story about that part of it. I just think it was the best material at the time, and we were quite eager to get on with it and see how that came out and move on to what was next, which was Creatures, which was. They're really significant. Absolutely. Event. I mean, Killers is such, I mean, it's so fast that this is happening after you come into the picture. You, I mean, you kind of, I think, arrive in February 1982, recordings taking place in March, and um, it, it's, it's all happening very fast, isn't it? And, it's, and especially when we're looking back 36 years in the rearview mirror, um, asking you specifics is probably cruelty. <laughs> Somewhat. But uh, uh, it's not a problem. I, I just, uh, I wish that I was crystal clear about what happened 36, 37 years ago. Um, but what I do remember was we needed a lot of organization done, which I did in terms of how we were going to go about this, get the four tracks done and move on and get into Creatures. And so it's worked out well. And I, for engineering, I had Dave Whitman who had worked on Foreigner 4, and uh, some other people as well. So there was a great support system. Now, Ace Frehley's not present at this time. Do you recall meeting him at any point in in the immediate, I, I guess, uh, run-up to Creatures, or was it always Bob Kulik was in the picture there, ready to do the guitar work, the lead guitar work? Um, both things are true. Bob was always in the picture and did some great guitar work. I really respect Bob as a player. And I misremembered something. I I had confused one event with another. And in a different interview that I did, I had mentioned that I thought I was remembering that Ace had played on Creatures. That Ace didn't play on Creatures. But he did play on Killers. Uh, because we flew back to New York and recorded him at Electric Lady. 
and I am clear about that, that it wasn't creatures, it was, it, it was uncanny. That, that's a really fascinating uh, thing to um, get some clarity on. I mean, it, I, I'm not going to dig further on that because, you know, we're just not going to be able to, I guess, remember the specifics about, you know, recording an electric lady after the fact. Um I want to talk about Nowhere to Run, which is, you know, probably one of the strongest songs that was recorded out of that new batch. How much did you kind of guide these performances? Did you make suggestions for changes to the songs that um, were chosen to be recorded? Or did you take more of a role of just recording them for, uh, you know, the production role? Or were you making suggestions for arrangements or maybe different styles of work within the songs? I always made suggestions. I almost always had them. Uh, comments and points of view or was something really not working quite as well as perhaps it could. I wasn't very passive. <laughs> I wasn't a, part a passive participant, if that's what you want. Yeah, that, that, that's a good way of putting it. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> Nowhere to Run was pretty well formed by the time that I heard it for the first time. Uh, but what changes we made or I might have contributed to, I honestly don't recall. Because at some point, uh, a working relationship just falls into a a format where everybody's doing what they do and what comes out of it is what comes out of it. That sounds pretty vague, actually. It, make, it makes sense for the reality of the situation that you, the dynamic is defined and then you just get on with it. So, uh, you know, I'm not sure, you know, if, if we need to add anything to that. I did, I did, I've asked about Gene and Paul as the principles of KISS. Uh, Eric Carr, what were your initial impressions of Eric? Uh, obviously the late drummer for the band. The drum sound on Creatures always comes up as a question. How was that decided on and how did you do that and so forth? And I, I can revisit all that and answer it as well. But I would pause and say that I can't ever talk about that without paying homage to Eric Carr, who cared about being a member of KISS more than I thought he cared about anything else in life. KISS was his passion. It was his dream. And uh, he was a very good player. And he was willing to work hard and try and become a better player um, at virtually any moment and every moment. So he had a lot of heart. And he really, really loved KISS and being a part of it. So those drums on Creatures would not have sounded the way that they did, aside from whatever I did with the microphones and everything else. They wouldn't have sounded the way they did if it was somebody else was playing, because Eric played with a lot of heart and a great deal of intention. So that's that would be my initial comment about Eric. Right. Yeah, that's that's a, lo a lovely thing to say about him, and a lot of fans who met him agree uh, with you on that. Uh, who had final say on any decisions that were made about the recording, whether it was from a production point of view? Um, was it a collaboration with Gene and Paul, or was anyone given that role of saying of having the final word, or was it all kind of negotiated the decision making for the recording? <laughs> You know, as in any record, all those things are true, every single one of them. On a given day, whoever's producing the record can say, you know, this is what works, even though you don't think it does. The artist can say, this is what works to the producer, even though you don't think it does. 
and somehow something gets negotiated and some common ground is found in terms of what works. So I think all things are, all things are true because uh, everything is a collaboration. If it's not a collaboration, it's often not very good because the reason why the artist is there is because they have talent and they're gifted in some ways and the producer is there to help them define that in the best possible way and express it. And it's hard to draw hard territorial lines about those positions. You know, somebody can have a really bad idea and for some reason really believe it until they're proven wrong. Some of that stuff gets ironed out in rehearsals and sometimes you don't hear it until you're in the studio and you hear it coming through speakers. And then you know, whoops, we shouldn't be doing that. There should be eighth notes instead of this. And it's a process. It's always an ongoing Did process. Did you feel like a referee? Uh, maybe a few <laughs> times. Uh, but uh, uh, I wasn't hired to be a referee, and, and so that wasn't an ongoing moment. But, uh, you know, in every record I've ever made, somebody's arguing about something. Uh, just the nature of the creative process at times creates a certain amount of disagreement. So I think uh, Kiss and this is I think we'll get off Kiss Killers after this. Uh, my last question on that: Kiss Killers comes out in May 1982. So you'd come into the picture in February. That's a very tight timeline. Was that communicated to you that we need these tracks fast, get them done, knock them out, and then you guys can focus on the, the full album? We weren't going to ever just knock something out to get it done. The career was too important. Kiss was a, a very significant entity. And so just knocking something out was never an attitude that anybody had. Um, but we were clear on the fact that we needed to move forward. And uh, once we started doing that, there was some momentum and we simply continued on. But it would be a mistake to think that the tracks on Kiss Killers were just thrown together and get it over with and so forth. Yes, and, and perhaps saying knock it out was the wrong wrong phrase to use. I mean, a sense of urgency or a fixed timeline, I, I think, was what I was alluding to in, in a less crass way. Sure. Uh, but was it always planned for the sessions to kind of segue from the, the Killers tracks into the full album tracks, or was it just a natural um, occurrence that you were working well together and therefore the decision was made to continue working and start on tracks that ultimately become Creatures of the Night? I think that's exactly what happened. The second thing you said. Just a natural evolution of the relationship. So let's get into Creatures of the Night. Creatures of the Night, obviously, Bob Kulik um, gives way to Vinnie Cusano, who comes into the picture. Um, what what do you recall about Vinnie Vincent, as he's now known? I always say that Vinnie is extremely calendared and uh, contributed a lot at the time. There were certain stylistic disagreements that occurred between he and G and Paul. Uh, that eventually made that bonding not quite perfect. Um, but Vinny is a talented, very talented guy, and uh, always was. And he contributed you were a, a lot. Opponent for bringing in external songwriters as part of freshening up the band's writing. Gene has suggested that you recommended Jim Valance and Brian Adams. What do you recall about bringing their material into the sessions? 
Well, I was very familiar with Brian. <clears throat> um, knew him a little bit. I also knew his manager in Vancouver. Uh, and Brian had previously been signed to a publishing company that I was was also close to. So Brian was somebody that I thought had a lot of potential to, to bring a melodic sense, but a melodic sense that was tempered by the kind of rock and roll that he was addressing. He was definitely a call that I was interested in doing. And overall, I felt that, you know, if it didn't work, if some of these pairings and matchups didn't really produce anything of real interest, it still was an effort uh, worth making. And as it turned out, it was a very good effort worth making. Some of those songs that had some different kinds of co-writers turned out uh, wonderful. Now, they initially well. gave you, I think, a demo tape containing Rock and Roll Hell, which had been recorded by Bachman Turner Overdrive in 1979, and War Machine to give to the band. Did you think that both of those were great songs for Kiss immediately when you heard the demos that they provided you? I thought the War Machine was in particular because uh, I thought it was a great addition to Gene's persona and it really fit his stage persona well. And I think I, I'd like the other one too at the time, obviously, for me, because it, it's unique, much more unique in terms of Gene's stage character. And I... Uh, I'm very proud of that record. I thought it came yeah, out Yeah, and obviously he wrote with uh, both Paul Stanley and Michael Jap on Down on Your Knees, which was recorded for the Killers EP, and with Eric Carr for Don't sure. Leave Me Lonely, which wasn't used by Kiss, but Brian recorded for one of his albums. You also brought in Adam Mitchell. How did you know him? Adam and I had been friends for, for, for quite a while, and I had um, I really respect Adam's songwriting ability and his approach. And um, we had been good friends, actually, for some time. And I, I got in the habit of bringing Adam into various projects I did when it seemed like some additional songwriting help would, would be valuable, uh, which it was. And he, uh, he contributed a lot several of those yeah ab absolutely he so, became one of yeah. their core co-writers throughout the mid to late 80s as well so uh, a very good contribution to bring in yes, i'm did. wondering were there any other songwriters that you thought would work well with the band that uh you know weren't interested or did not gel or were those really the, the you know adams valance and uh adam mitchell the only ones that you brought in once uh once adam worked well with paul and um, War Machine and the other songs started happening. The idea was not to just immerse Kiss in, you know, a whole batch of outside writers. It was to really do whatever was necessary on a limited and very controlled basis. So I was very satisfied with what we accomplished. But the idea, I wasn't really going to keep bringing in some plethora of songwriters from the outside when we didn't. No, and of course, through Adam Mitchell, Vinnie Vincent, or Vinnie Cassano, enters the picture uh, with both guitar and songwriting as well. So presumably that was more than enough for what yeah. was needed at the sessions. 
killers and creatures are considered companions with the you know how, how the sessions went from one to the next once Vinnie vincent's a part of the picture did the dynamic change you know uh, for killers you'd had bob kulik as the only guitarist working with the band but with creatures Vinny's now part of the the scene not part of the band but uh working on um the recordings as are a whole ton of other guitarists how, how did that kind of change between the two I think the intention was always to see if uh, Vinny would be able to really join the heart of the join in with the heart of the band and contribute in a way that created a very cohesive uh, force. Uh, and Vinny, at the beginning, I think that that was really looked very promising. But as time went on, there were a lot of differences that occurred both personality-wise and otherwise, and musically. Um, so the relationship didn't quite pan out for the, the ultimate. But when Vinny was there, unquestionably, he contributed a lot. And he was very strong. And some portion of that was very useful. Not all of it, because it really wasn't Kiss. Kiss is not a super melodic But he definitely contributed... And as I think I mentioned before, I always say Vinny's a very talented guy. Whose um, decision was it really to start doing a, a cattle call for guitarists? Ace Frehley was leaving the band, obviously, and a decision was made to try out a lot of these guitarists who were being auditioned for the band in the studio, notably Steve Ferris, um, on, on the title track of Creatures, were you part of that discussion that said, hey, why don't we try them out on a solo? Or was that something Gene and Paul came to you with and said, let's use these guys and see how they do in a recording situation? It was a combination of both, but it would be incorrect to characterize it as a cattle call. You know, Gene and Paul both had some very specific ideas. And when it came to the bluesiest one of the songs, which is I Still Love You, then I had the idea of bringing in Robert Ford because that's really really his cup of tea. But it um, wasn't a cattle call. It wasn't like, gee, let's start throwing a lot of people against the wall and see what happens. And the people who were brought in were brought in for very specific reasons and in most cases uh, were people that Gene and Paul had strong feelings about. The guitarists, the players who were, who were brought in to contribute to Creatures was really an idea of making the record richer. Once again, it was not some random thing like, let's just try a bunch of people and see what works and what doesn't. There's always a little bit of experimentation, but it was really had a great deal of intention behind it. And the intention was really to make Creatures the best record it could possibly be. That's it, but I really would disagree with any perception that there was just some loose desire to start bringing in scads of people to see what they could do and not do. It was quite specific, and Gene and Paul in particular had very specific ideas about it. Oh, right. I, I, I wouldn't suggest that it was, you know, a, a, 
a load of guitarists coming into the actual recording sessions, but in terms of the numbers of uh, people that they did audition, there there were quite a few dozen guitarists that went through that, and that was you know part of my question, which was you know those people who were coming in to rehearse with them at SIR, you know, learning part of the catalog to play with the band, or in the case of some of them, not learning anything and just seeing how things worked. As, were you present at any of those kind of rehearsals to see if there was a guitarist with a sort of synergy or feel that you thought would be useful to then bring into the recording studio and ha have them try a solo, um, as was the case with Steve Ferris? Yeah, I would think that uh, it was a long time ago, and I'd like to try and be honest about all this, so I, I can't really claim that I remember any of that perfectly, but I w I'm pretty sure that uh, I would have been because uh, we were, by that point we were all working as a team to really try and make something. So let me special. ask you about a, a couple of other guitars who've um, been kind of mentioned to see if you do recall, and obviously 36 years is a long time to go back in your mind when you've uh, been working and living this story. But Edward Van Halen was mentioned as being around the sessions uh, with Gene at that point. Do you recall him being at the studio at any of the time? I remember that Eddie came by. I don't remember. And he, he did have a good relationship with Gene, and I do recall that. But um, I don't, there, there was, as I recall, there was no auditioning that Eddie did. Or any kind of oh, no, no, no. And I, and I wouldn't be suggesting that in the slightest. Oh, good. good. Um, one other person who is very unclear about, um, he certainly auditioned for the band and uh, was invited back a couple of times, was Robin Crosby of Rat. Do you recall seeing him at all? Um, I, I quite honestly don't. And I think you made something, a very good point a few moments ago, that it wasn't a ton of people being brought into the actual sessions. It was what the song called for. And that's always been kind of Kiss's mantra going back to the 70s, that if the song needed someone, they got it, someone to do what was needed for the song. There were some there were some other yeah. players on this album. Adam Mitchell played a little bit of guitar. Um, Eric Carr played bass on I Still Love You. And Jimmy Haslip who obviously is a very bluesy guy. I mean, he was in the Yellow Jackets at the time, um, you know, came in and played bass on, I think, Danger. What do you recall about Jimmy Haslip? And was he, again, being a very melodic player, was he someone who you thought would be useful to bring in to do that role, or was that just happenstance? I'm a big fan of putting together some different surprising elements and see what happens. And I knew Jimmy from the Yellow Jackets, which was the group that he was in for many years. And I had used Jimmy actually as a player um, for some other projects. So I was very aware of Jimmy and his talent. And uh, yeah, I think that Jimmy's now great. When we, we listened to both of the, you know, these first two 1982 albums, Killers and Creatures. There's uh, quite a bit of a dynamic difference between the two sonically. Most of it comes down to the drums. Nico Bolas you know, what can you tell me about the decision? Did you decide to use him to mic the drums for Creatures? Uh, we decided to record a record one in the Valley. And I, I was very familiar with the technique and, and the kind of microphones that Nico uses because I had spent a lot of time using two engineers who were 
also trained under the same auspices. One was Greg Lagani, who unfortunately passed away and is no longer here. The other one was a fellow named Jim Niper. Um, and in the food chain, Nico was kind of trained by everybody. Um, the other guys kind of came first. Valgaray was actually the first, and after that, he more or less trained Greg Lodani, and Lodani trained Napper, and they all kind of trained Nico. Nico kind of grew up in that environment, but Nico is a particularly talented guy and had some very clear gifts about recording, and I had known Nico from some other projects. I had done a record one over the years, and he loved harder rock and roll than the other guys did. And Nico was a great choice. And he really took it on as a challenge to try and produce something that sounded unlike anything else. And he did a wonderful job. And uh, But he was very creative and very open. And just as a person, he's a great guy. So I had known him for some time before any of this happened. And uh, my own kind of engineering orientation gravitates towards Telefunk and 251s for drums. And and we were on a mission. We were, it was a clear recognition that Creatures was a very important record and that it carried a lot of weight. And we wanted to live up to that aspiration. So uh, the drums were eventually placed in a room by themselves. You know, the recording that we were doing, we were recording the drums, but we were, the other instrument in the room was the ambience that was created by the drums. The combination of those two elements is what eventually became the prime drum sound that we had. And finally, the other component was Eric, because uh, the drums would not have sounded like that if anybody else was playing. Eric had uh, also, just like uh, Bob Hewlett, a lot of intention in his playing. And since he had such great passion for being a part of KISS, um, he played his heart out. So, and I think that shows in the, in the tracks. They've, they've definitely come to define the uh, the ultimate in a KISS sound on a on a hard, on one of their harder uh, sounding records. So, I mean, that's why you're always mentioned in relation to that. What about as a producer, for those of us who don't work in the industry, who've never been in a studio uh, in, in that sort of context, how did you use your en- engineers like Dave Whitman and Dave Thorner, who did the engineering on uh, KISS Killers? Uh, how, how do you utilize their skill set and what do they do for you as a producer? That's an interesting question. Um, I was fortunate enough to work with some wonderfully creative and talented people. Dave Whitman and Dave Thorner among them. Nico Bolas among them. Uh, Bob Clearmountain among them. Uh, engineering is an interesting position to have because you're not just recording an existing sound onto a piece of tape at that time. Uh, now it would be Pro Tools or something else. But it was really about how to blend those sounds in a complementary way with the other sounds that were being recorded. And when these guys were really good, they were like painters. They, they were artisans. They weren't just doing a mechanical job of recording. I was fortunate enough that I had grown up in the business having a lot of time with some 
quite incredible recording engineers. And I learned a lot. But one of the things that I learned the most was the appreciation of how difficult it is to actually get a particular sound that creates an effect when you hear it. And uh, uh, so I, I always was very involved in what was going on. But uh, the people that I worked with and was fortunate enough to work with, um, they did a great job because they were great at what they did and that they had a passion for it and that that passion led them to want to do something that I said earlier, which has caused them to feel something, uh, which winds up becoming a marker for when you're satisfied with what you're doing. So I'm kind of going on and on for what is a pretty straightforward question. I don't know if I have to be very No, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah, they were really great people. Dave Whitman, in particular, had a great talent with electric guitars. And by saying that, I don't mean to diminish anybody else's skill with it, but Dave, in particular, had a real understanding of martial amplifiers. Um, and he could coax a certain kind of sound out of the, those amplifiers in a way that oftentimes other guys really didn't have that touch. I was very fortunate to always have great people. Now, in, in the middle of recording, uh, in, in early on in the sessions anyway, um, for, I guess, what was Kiss Killers, uh, all going management are fired by Kiss. Did any of the things that were going on around Gene and Paul, in particular, as the principals, uh, affect you? Or was that just you continue focusing on the album, or did it distract them in any way? Or were they able, through all that drama, just to stay focused on their mission? Gene uh, and Paul, the day that I met them, always been you know very committed, very professional guys, and uh, whatever they went through and whatever changes occurred, my job was responsibility related with the uh, the record. So I wasn't really involved in the, the other aspects of the career. My focus was to try and ensure that the record got made and was made as well as possible and that we did something great. One of the songs uh, Gene has recently talked about is I Love It Loud and the chant in that song, if you can hear that in your head and immediately know what I'm talking about. Sure. He, he said that uh, that chant section was actually originally intended to fit on one of the songs on Killers, um, but that it didn't work. Do you recall any of work on arrangements like that, that uh, a section as obvious as the I Love It Loud chant being you know, removed from another song? and placed elsewhere, shall we say. When Gene, when Gene mentioned that to you, he may have not intended to suggest that it, it um, wound up in one place and wound up in a, first wound up in one place and secondly wound up in another. I don't honestly recall that, but I certainly would have been hearing it and talking about it at that time if there was any real consideration. So once that. Creatures comes out, uh, obviously Vinny's towards, um, you know, after the album comes out, he becomes a member of the band. How happy were you with the reception of the album? Internationally, it did well and raised the band's visibility again. Um, it didn't exactly storm up the charts, but was solidly received and, and well-reviewed. From your perspective, was that acceptable or 
were your expectations that it didn't quite perform up to what was desired by both the band and yourself? My expectation was that we were going to make a great record. And I felt that we did that. I felt that we accomplished the goal. We sent a message back to the fans that the band was alive and well and kicking. That Creatures was good evidence of that. So in terms of how successful it could have been or should have been at that particular moment, I considered the record to be a success because we fulfilled what we intended to, um, which was extremely important. And uh, to this day, it's the one, one KISS project, the one KISS record that I was involved with that everybody always mentions. So I make the assumption just based on that it's it was very successful. As far so as you're, you're brought back to do the next album, which is Lick It Up. Um, what do you recall about that approach? Was it, hey, you did a great job on the last one, let's do the next one together? Or had it been discussed in the middle of recording, Creatures That, when we do our next one, we want you to uh, work with us again? Um, I don't remember exactly how all that transpired, but, you know, at that point, we had established a sense of teamwork together, and I had phone calls about things, and um, seemed to work well enough that Gene and Paul wanted to continue. Um, but there was no big discussion about it. It just seemed like the easy thing for us to do, which was to continue. By, by the time you start recording Lick It Up, Kiss now has Vinnie Vincent uh, fully kind of as a member of the band. You reconvene on the East Coast this time at, uh, is it Record Plant? Was it Record Plant? Uh, right Track Studios in New York City uh, to record the album. Um, right. In, in yeah. your pre-production and sit down for the meetings, were there any specific um, avenues you wanted to explore or was it uh, decided just continue doing what you'd been doing for Creatures and Killers and uh, go forth with what they had then, the material-wise? The material was... Uh you know, somewhat different, as you could expect it would be. But the general consensus was we're on the right path. We were doing well together. And uh, did it? Um, did Vinny, being a full member of the band, change the dynamic? Obviously, Creatures, as we've discussed, had, um, you know, several different guitarists being utilized and some of those who were uh, being vetted by the band for perspective replacing Ace Frehley. Um, you know, coming in, it's it's much more a band project with with Lick It Up. Did that come across to you that uh, it was it felt more like a band? It did, but you know, it was always a constant continuing audition for Vinny. And while Vinny brought some his talent and in good musical sense and good good playing ability, still there was a melding, a period of trying to meld. Uh, those talents together and that was ongoing throughout what, the What up. did you feel as producer? Was there a, a massive difference in the material between the two albums? Do you feel obviously one had more external songwriters and Vinny um, you know, contributes to 80% of Lick It Up. Was it any more difficult for you to pick material with the band to record or was it easier? Uh, it's a but the question is really difficult to try and respond to. I mean, whatever is currently the list of songs or what what, what composes the uh, the content is 
always different. Um, it's not easier or more difficult. It's just always the job. Try and see if some of this or all of it represents an overall record that also represents the artist and the band in the right way. So you, you, you didn't feel a need to bring in any external songwriters when you were going through the material that was uh, presented? No, there were... There was whatever involvement there was from other people on Wicked Up at the time, including Vinny, um, was doing well, was having good results. And since we had a good experience with Creatures, uh, it just really felt like that was going to be Was it going. easier or more difficult than Creatures, would you say, to produce? With, was the relationship so solid at that point that it was a quicker and more um, less challenging album to create? I don't think necessarily less challenging, but I think that every project is challenging. Every artist is challenging in their own way. And uh, But there was momentum from Creatures, and I felt like we capitalized on that. Look it up, and Paul had written some great songs, and Gene had some great songs as well. So there was a good feeling about doing Look It Up when that was going on. And Vinny, like I said, Vinny certainly contributed, but there was this ongoing kind of seeing if there was going to be a true blending between Disney and Gene and Paul. One has a certain amount of passion and drive to make something as good as it can possibly be. We were always on like that Like the, uh, the previous album, there is one external player from the outside of the band performing on this album. Rick Derringer does the solo on Exciter. What do you recall about him in the session? Was it just one of those happenstance things that he was around the studio at uh, a time when a solo was needed or Vinny's solo wasn't quite resonating with the material? What are your recollections of Rick being involved on that one song? I remember recording Rick and he played great. I don't really remember the if there was any particular disappointment about Vinny not playing it well or I honestly don't recall, but I know that Rick Absolutely. did a great job. Very nice melodic solo there. And let's compare these two albums again um, as we start to wrap up here. When it comes time to mix an album when you're working with Kiss, is it just you or are Gene and Paul part of that process uh, from the, the start? How, how did that arrangement work at that stage of the construction of an album? It's a collaboration to a certain point and, and... Uh, in terms of mixing, I, as I recall, I would have always started out with whoever the engineering guys were. And, and in this case, it was Frank Filippetti, who did a wonderful job, was a great guy, and also a very talented engineer. And um, uh, Gene and Paul certainly had their input. They had a point of view that was invaluable. So, you know... At the end of the day, I really feel that all records are collaborations. And if they come out well, it's because the collaboration worked well. But I, I don't really think that anybody does anything no, by themselves. I, I totally agree with that. In the middle of recording, they take a break to go to South America where they perform their final shows and makeup. Um, did they come back with a, a different sort of energy from that break, or was it just something that uh, didn't really um, resonate with you, the, their, their touring activities as they wrapped up their makeup career? I remember Brazil, and uh, it was very successful for them. And that could only be good, but uh, 
not long after that, yeah, you're right, they took the makeup off and Look It Up came out, and that was the that was a big From moment. a professional or maybe a taste point of view, and obviously you're hired to do a job and taste doesn't all, your musical preferences don't come into play all the time. If you had to pick one album of these two primary albums that you worked on with Kiss, do you have a preference? I mean, each of them have their own emotional attachment and stories for you, but is there one that holds the balance in terms of its material and sound over the other uh, that, that you'd say that's the album I want to most be remembered for producing for Kiss? I can't really qualify it. I would say that uh, if somebody wanted to really have me answer that question, I'd say both for entirely different reasons. Um, Creatures was such a... Uh, really had a specific mission to it. And so it was a great experience to be a part of the responsibility for making that record. Look It Up was also a really great experience. So difficult for me to really separate them out and choose one over the other. As there are different records, there were different agendas going on at the same you know, when we were doing those. But I'm very pleased to realize that as a producer, you're the only producer in all of Kiss's history to have worked on four consecutive projects Killers, Creatures, Lick It Up, and then, of course, you did the drums on Animalize. If nothing else, I, I, I think that's impressive run with the band through all the changes that they went through in the period. As, the, as Lick It Up is released and again continues to rebuild their career uh, outside of makeup and they tour successfully with it, it performs well. You you came back into the fold again for Animal Eyes, but only did the drums. What do you recall about um, working on that album and uh, having to leave in order because of I think you had uh, scheduling conflicts with other acts that you were going to be producing. I did, and uh, it was most unfortunate that I had to to step away. But I wanted to at least make sure that um, the band was left with the drums fully intact and recorded and edited, cut together and. And the drum tracks were great. So, uh, but yeah, that was that was a difficult time and a moment that um, I was sorry that I had to leave, but uh, I had made other commitments that I couldn't get away from. Oh, that's very true. I actually thought that Bob Ezrin did four records. I guess it wasn't. They no, he did three. He did, he did do a little bit of pre-production on Psycho Circus, but just. Um... Same with same with Eddie Kramer okay. didn't uh, for studio albums. So, you know, you're, you're right up there for having worked with them on quite a lot of material, which uh, is why we've been so keen to speak with you for so many years. Um, <laughs> yeah. When you look back in hindsight at uh, all, all of the work that you did with them, is there anything that you would change if you could? I mean, Bob has gone back and remixed and remastered Destroyer of all albums. Um, is there anything that you listen back to these albums and say, I, if I could, I would, or are you 100% satisfied with how they stand to this day? You know, something can always be a little bit better or a little bit different. But um, I think these creatures really does sound great. When I was on the Kiss Cruise last year, in the hallways, even in the hallways, and the speakers in the hallways, they're, they're playing Kiss. And I remember walking down one of those hallways hearing War Machine coming through a mono speaker and thinking that, that just sounded awesome, just sounded incredible. Um, I'm really happy with Look It Up. I... I you know, it's the same thing. My experiences with the band were uh, complex and challenging and really gratifying. So I'm uh, grateful for all of it. 
and very pleased about the end result. That's a fantastic way to end this interview, Michael. I think I've covered everything that uh, I have, and hopefully uh, it's not been too much of a drain on you to have uh, sat with me through several sessions for this interview. So I, I would like to thank you on behalf of the Kiss FAQ podcast and uh, also all the fans who will listen to this uh, for the time that you've given us. So. Um, thank you very much for that time. It's very much appreciated. It's my pleasure. I, you know, declined doing these kinds of things for many, many years. And uh, I had an experience. I went on the Kiss Cruise last year, and I had a lot of contact with the fans. And it uh, was very humbling to see how much all of this meant to them. And as a consequence, uh, to me as well. All right, we're back. So that was uh, the edited version of the Kiss FAQ Michael James Jackson interview. I hope you found out something interesting, something worthwhile that made it different from all the other interviews that he's done of late. I, I must say, Michael was a very fun person to talk to. Um, very calm, very you know pleasant it was a you know a, a great conversation. I could obviously have done fifteen or sixteen pages of notes and just banged on and on and on uh, it's, uh, what do you remember about the recording of the solo on uh, you know I'm a legend tonight and you know I, I think one of the things that I found very clear is that the the details are just lost in the mist of time in, in a lot of things um, it was very enjoyable on kind of the broader questions you know um, the importance of creatures but Mark let's start with you I mean what are some of your thoughts on on the interview that kind of stand out and you know I, I guess what are the the sorts of questions that you would like to hear because uh, obviously with Indy coming up Michael will be doing a Q&A session so uh, yeah. if, if you've got any questions someone who might be able to ask those uh, might hear them well um the, the, uh, there's a couple of things I really really enjoyed about that interview because I had heard some of the other ones but I liked your one for a few reasons the one he did go in depth into his background a lot more than some of the other podcasters did, which I liked. I mean, one of the things I was found really impressive was how much knowledge he has about the business besides the engineering production. The fact that he went in and did A&R and stuff like that as well before, and he also had to learn about the accounting side of stuff for the budgets of stuff. And this is all stuff that I thought was invaluable for a guy who becomes a producer because there's nothing worse than having a producer who doesn't know how to keep the numbers together when you're making a record, right? So I thought that it was fantastic that he knows all these kinds of extra things that are part of his skill set beside being an engineer and producer. Um, of course, all the other comments that he made about the recordings I enjoyed, like the thing about Ace uh, being, you know, in his memory, he remembers Ace being involved at least with Killers, which I thought was very interesting that he brought up, whether that's clearly... Whether that clearly happened or not, I guess we'll never really know. But I'm guessing that I take his word on that, right, that he was involved. Um, the one thing that I would love to have answered um, if it gets brought up is uh, what how, what does he think? Like, how, like, for example, the mix of the album for Creatures. I know that Bob Claremountain must have been involved with that, I think, with the mix of that record. I mean, I'm wondering what his thoughts are on his involvement, how much he thought that he had... Uh, to do with the shaping of the sound of that record. 
Yeah, and that's one of the questions I did ask him about the process of mixing. You know, some producers go in and they lock the doors and leave the band outside, and a week later they emerge with uh, a shadow beard and red eyes and a headache with, you know, here is the album all crafted. Um, you know, guys, Albini comes to mind, you know, just mm -hmm. complete cave troll out of which magic arrives. Um and I, I don't know whether the answer really kind of framed exactly what was happening on an album project that Michael James Jackson was involved in during that part of the process. So, yeah, that, that would be a good one to expand. Ken, yeah, let's uh, get some of your thoughts on the interview. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, what really struck me is, well, firstly, he wasn't, you know, Gonna, he wasn't looking to be a producer. I mean, he said he was, you know, a copywriter, um, <laughs> that kind of uh, job he was going for. But um, the thing that stuck out to me is um, his deal with, uh, like, Eric Carr saying that, you know, the sounds of the drums, even though they, you know, they, they put them in a room and all that, but they wouldn't have sounded as good had he not been the drummer. Um, because of his the way he he drums his intent when he he drums um, so I thought that was a very high compliment uh, because there's people out there saying it's just it's not Eric Carr's you know he, it, it, the sound made him sound better than he is um, that's not totally true he was really good he can be a crappy drummer and and have that big sound it's not going to sound uh that good so so i thought that was a very high compliment and uh he talked you know really well of him um the other thing about uh talked about when we, you were talking about a little bit mark um the engineering um he talked to i know he mentioned dave whitman uh and the coldest a, a number of times and he said dave whitman from you know we did Foreigner 4, and I thought, well, wait a minute, Foreigner 4, when did that come out? Was that, did that come out? 79. Just, 78, just 79, before. yeah. Oh, no, I think I think it was uh, 80 or 81, I want to say. Uh, yeah, it's not 79, I don't think. So anyway, um, so I thought that was interesting because, you know, Foreigner 4 was with, uh, you know, Mutt Lang producing in. You're right. 81, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it was... The sound of that is really great, the guitars and everything on that. So I, I can see that, you know, why he maybe he picked him up and how he respects him as an engineer and, and gets the sounds. And like he says, you know, he said uh, blending the sounds properly, you know, of the instruments properly because you could have one too high or too low or one you, you should have higher, you can't hear it because it's too low. Um, but he says... He was really good at that. So that's some of them. And then it's funny story was, you know, Jim Morrison. Yeah. Dead. Yeah, this dead, dead guy out in front of the building. I don't know. Did, yeah, did, has, any, has anyone listened to most of the other appearances? I think he was on Decibel Geek. He, he had two appearances yeah. on the I think sides. I heard that there, too. Did has yeah. he? Is that one of his uh, kind of stock uh, stories? Because he did it on one of them. I know he yeah, did it. Wasn't, it wasn't on all of them, but on one of them he did one. do it. 
Yeah. That, that was really cool. I mean, you know, Jim Morrison in a bush that, you know, so because I hadn't heard it, that was all new <laughs> to me. And again, you know, when I do these interviews, I do it from a selfish perspective of what do I want to find out and what do I have the capability capability of asking? Uh, Tim, being a fantastic interviewer, was able to speak music with these guys. And, you know, that's very evident when you look at like interviews that he did with Tom Saviano and he's able to talk music charts. He's able to talk uh, descending scales and musician. I can't do that. I can't even talk technical. I was just happy that he mentioned one mic, you know, type that uh, was one of his preferences. I was like, okay, that, someone's going to be happy with that detail, regardless of whether it's been mentioned elsewhere or not. Lonnie, you've been sipping your beer, so uh, let's get some of your thoughts. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a, a fantastic interview. Um, the Jim Morrison thing, obviously, is, is a highlight. It's, it's cracked me up just listening to that. But I I really thoroughly enjoyed it. It was something different than I've heard from any of the other interviews with him as of late. It's his backstory and how he came to be a, a record producer. Um, the story about how he was telling he wanted to get a job, and they said, well, how do you expect to get this job if you don't have any experience. And he said, well, how do you have any experience if you don't have a job? And I, th- and I think that that resonates with, with everyone because I think we've all been in that position before at some point in our lives where it's like, God, just give me a freaking break here. You know, I mean, how, how am I supposed to get good at something if I can't get any experience doing it? So I think I, that resonated with me very well. So I always enjoy listening to how um, successful people, came to be in the position that they are and how they, you know, maybe not, maybe it wasn't the goal that they originally intended for, but how the road that they followed to become the person that they are. So I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And just like when I read a lot of books or autobiographies, I really enjoy, you know, the first couple of chapters, the backstory of how this person became the person that we know them to be. Um, so that, that part of the interview was, was the most fascinating part to me. I wish that, you know, um, maybe there's a little more about about Lick It Up. I know you kind of touched on Lick It Up at the end. Um, I wish there was a little bit more on that, but um, you know, there's there's other interviews out there for people that are that are that are looking for that aspect. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, and but by by the time we got to Lick It Up, you like, talked to him for quite a while. But yeah, we were quite condensed. I think we were on our sixth session as well. You know, this wasn't all one day or, or one call. You know, it was over over multiples, and uh, there were, there were some technical challenges with dropouts, uh, cell signal, and whatnot. So by the time we got to Lick It Up, you know, I, I kind of. I, I did cruise through it. Again, I, I thought that people who had already spoken with Michael on other things would probably have gone into quite a bit more detail with him on that. So I was would be pretty much safe and kind of glossing over. And, I, I, and again, uh, glossing over. I loved how Michael took me to task for, you know, some of my choice of phrases like cattle, mm. cattle yeah. call. Uh, yeah. You, yeah. you could just see him kind of sitting up straight. It wasn't a cattle call. Um you know, and and I, I love it when you've actually interviewed someone for long enough that you, there's a certain, you know, maybe you're lucky or there's a comfort level that, you know, he didn't get offended. But, you know, like Bruce once did when I interviewed him, he made it very clear that he didn't agree with the way I had characterized something and uh, somewhat sternly corrected me. So for anyone who does do work on, you know, looking at the creatures of the night era and the guitarists that come through the door, um, don't use the word 
cattle call because uh, it, it's it's not what it felt like, or at least the part or, that, that Michael was involved in. Because again, I tried to get that separation between those guitarists who were coming into SIR and rehearsing with the band were not necessarily ones that Michael was watching. They were working directly right. with the band. Some of them then graduated or came back for a second session and were brought into the studio. Um, uh, Ferris. Mr. Mister. Steve Ferris. Steve yeah. Ferris is a good example of someone who was kind of brought back in. And it, it was just a very fortuitous time that when I was talking with Michael that morning, a podcast had come out. And I, I don't remember which one it is that did the Steve Ferris uh, yeah. feature. And right at the top of that one was him talking about his experience with Kiss. It was just a very timely um, kind of occurrence for me then to go to Michael and say, hey, you know, this is what he recalls and, you know, see how that lines up with Michael's ex- recollection of the time. I really enjoyed the part where you're talking about hammering out those four songs for killers. <laughs> and he didn't yeah. hesitate yeah, to correct hammer. you that we don't hammer anything out. That was very entertaining, actually. Yeah. And, and, and I, I like I said I like it when it it works out. You you unfortunately you can offend some guests with a with an ill thought out phrasing of hammered just, out. But you know yeah, what I, what I obviously what I'm trying I to knew, get to. I knew what you meant, but he he yeah. he was he wasn't going to hesitate to correct it. We don't hammer anything. out. No. So, you know, trying to figure out the period between obviously Bill Alcoin is uh, still involved when Michael is brought in. So we now know that Michael was being interviewed in February, probably before Paul went to uh, New Hampshire for his uh, work on his ear. Um, and then in March, they're in the studio. So it's a very rapid decision that I find absolutely fascinating with, obviously, the Odyssey book is how it goes from the elder straight into, holy shit, we have something else to do here. Uh, we have to get back to work with a whole new paradigm, um, bringing in the external songwriters. Uh, again, I, I found that very interesting. Um and again, just stressing that I haven't listened to any of the other ones. All I had to go on were some interviews, uh, uh, Ken Sharp stuff and Behind the Mask, obviously. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and pretty I mean, much it was, that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious that they were in panic mode if we got to put this train back on the tracks at that point. And, hammer, and, and, and I do think hammering out those, those yeah, killer songs think, is, is not a poor choice of words because I think yeah. they were – they were literally hitting the panic button at that point in their but, career. But I think that I think that he got offended by that because he got he took it under the, the impression I think that they were just quickly doing it, slapping it together, and he wasn't putting his best efforts kind yeah. of behind it. That, that's the way yeah. I took it. That I sure. was it was like I was almost accusing them of being throwaway, haphazard tracks that were right. quickly assembled and thrown to the European masters of phonogram. Here, here's the damn songs that you wanted. Go put them out on Kiss Killers. <laughs> so, so I can. Totally understand that someone who is proud of his uh, his legacy and his work mm-hmm. saying, uh, you know, no, 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 you know, not, not in yeah. my kitchen, no hammering. So <laughs> it, it, th- that was very entertaining, mm-hmm. and and that's what I got out of this interview the most is it paints a much clearer picture that uh, controlled panic, mm-hmm. uh, focused determination. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. that's coming yeah, up yeah. coming off the elder there wasn't a sense of desperation there was a sense of um determination you know i, I can't find right. a, a different word he definitely he definitely seems like a calm pair of hands to deal with like when he when he's in there oh, yeah. you, you don't you don't feel like you know you'd be 
like stressed or panicked working with the guy. It seems like he would keep everything under control. And I think that's exactly what they probably needed after what happened with the elder. They needed, you know, somebody to calm them down, maybe say, listen, we can get it back on track. And, you know, he, he, he just has that feeling about him that he's very focused. He's, he's not a kind of like crazy off the wall guy, like an Ezrin could be hint, hint. And, you know, so he, he, he seems like he can kind of keep the, he could keep the waters calm. You know what I mean? I think that's what that's a good personality to have when you're recording, especially after coming off of something like that, right? Yeah. Didn't didn't he say though? Uh, you asked him one of the last or questions um, you asked were his favorite of the two albums. I, I tried him to pick, tried to get him to pick one, but like uh, yeah. most parents with more than one child, they'll never pick one. Um, they'll yeah. always uh, kind of dither. Okay, that's another bad word. Jeez, I'm just I give up. Um, my English language is deserting me. Yeah. Um, uh, will uh, decline to pick between one of them. So yeah. so yeah, you know, because both of them were their own source of situation. What I found interesting, I didn't really get a chance to go into. I wanted to talk about Armored Saint and uh, L.A. Mm. Guns and some of the bands that he worked with afterwards. Because beforehand, you've got you know Pablo Cruz, Patty Dahlstrom, Kiss Connection. <laughs> um, obviously, with that, that he produced the album that came after the one that had the original version of Wedding on it. That obviously was recorded by Lynn Christopher. So, oh, yeah. a, six, a sixth degree of separation there. So, he was coming from a very, very different background, which I, you know, I got to ask it and I got a very good, a very good answer about how he came into the picture. You know, otherwise, I, do, I would never have really understood um, how someone with his lineage ends up producing a kiss record. It didn't make it didn't make any sense yeah. to me and to get yeah. the story yeah, was was a success as far as i'm concerned so yeah now i'm going to be downloading all those other interviews with him from the other podcast now that i can finally listen to them i'm happy everyone else was able to do those and hopefully between everything that we've you know the various podcasts have done they paint a better picture for what is really a fascinating period of time look at the number of songs from lick it up and creatures that are still um, you know, part of the core catalog. Say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, That's what I always exactly. say, but there's, yeah. there's still a lot of things uh, that I, I would like to ask him. I mean, I wouldn't mind a, a second round, uh, with him, but I, I think, you know, uh, like in, animalize. Yeah, you, you know, well, that's pretty clear. Yeah, what happened? You know, you know, I think he answered that. You know, Armored Saint, I believe, was the next act that he was scheduled to be working with in um, in 1984. So Kiss comes off the road in March. Pre-production pretty much starts immediately. Uh, early recording of the obviously drums come first um, would have been April, and then mm-hmm. he's off to work with Armored Saint. It's such a shame to me, though. To me. Animalized, it's such a shame. And I know I'm getting off topic because we're talking about Michael James Jackson. Animalize is such a shame because Animalize could have been so great if you would have kept Michael James Jackson. If you could have kept Vinny. God, Animalize could have been awesome. And that was the yeah, question. Because... I did not get to that question. And thank God, you, Lonnie, Animalize because awesome. I, have to, I have to write that one down. I, I, I mean, that would be a great question for Michael. It's was Vinny still part of the picture, you know, uh, when you were doing pre-production in any sense? Or yeah. were you there when Mark comes in? Uh, if you did the drums, Mark would have been presumably mm-hmm. there by that point. Well, he's hanging around. So, yeah. you know, maybe one of the other podcasts has covered it. And, uh, you know, I just mm-hmm. need to do my, my listening. I think to I haven't, I haven't heard anything like that. 
three. I, I would hope three sides did with two goes I think uh, with him so far. Um, and, mm-hmm. and Mark, particularly, awesome. his uh, musical knowledge and Tommy, for that matter, all three of the guys. So, you know, that, that would be a good question. I'd, I'd also ask him about his opinion of Animalize. Would, you know, <laughs> I, I, well, would, would he answer? You know, yes, of course, it'd be a better album if I produced it, because obviously Paul Stanley took the lead on it after he did the drums. I, he's not going to criticize Paul. Um, neither I, is there anything I think to criticize Paul about with the sound of that album. It sounds like a good album. It's the material and, and more specifically Gene's material. But, you know, mm-hmm. what I, I did find from Michael's answers when talking about the material on the other albums, that he certainly wasn't willing to throw Gene under the bus either. You know, he, he was yeah. very balanced and level in how he responded to all of the questions. Uh, uh, very professional. Uh, obviously very proud of the work that he did. Doesn't second guess the decisions that he made. Um, no revisionism seemed to seep into yeah. his, his recollections or answers for the, for the things he went into detail with. Yeah, and it seems like he, he was like that with everybody. When you mentioned any kind of session player or anything, he always talked of, talked about them in a really good light, and I thought that was really cool too, right? Yeah, and, and, I, and, I, yeah and, I think that, and I think that has a lot to do with, again, his pride too, because, you know, like it, he, he doesn't want to look like he would have picked somebody bad i think that he's proud of the people he selected and the songwriters that he brought in because i know for just by listening to it that he thinks that the record is all the better for those selections so mm-hmm. of course i think that's uh, a credit to him as well that he knew who to bring in who would help the record and who would make it stronger so hats off to him for that and and that didn't go against anything with the ethos of kiss did it you know straight back to yeah. 1974 Nothing to lose, needed a bit of piano. Bring someone in who can play piano. So Bruce Foster yeah. comes in. Uh, your buddy Bob had no problem bringing in people to, uh, you know, yeah. fill out the sound where necessary on Destroyer. The same mm-hmm. is the case with, you know, Love Gun and Alive 2, backing vocals. Where was it needed? What was needed? Uh, unmasked Dynasty, same, yeah. same case. The Elder, there are ghost players on there. So it, yeah. it's it's nothing unusual. It's just that more of them were known, I guess, when it comes to Creatures of the Night. And uh, I'm, I'm glad he, he could recall, you know, Rick Derringer, you know, one of, one of the few. Yeah. I, I'm not a big concert guy, but I did see Derringer uh, in a club <laughs> in Pennsylvania in, what was it, 89, I think, or in 90, something like that. Um, always liked Derringer. So good stuff, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. All right. I guess I'll... Well, just one other thing. Uh, I guess the only other question I could think of is, and maybe it's been asked before, but if if Kiss, you know, today would ask asked him to produce a, a new record, would he do it? You know, I don't think we have to worry about that. Yeah, <laughs> and I that seems, seems to be out there, but I, I think that. You know, when it, if it came down to the question of producers for a Final Kiss album, if it was going to stay in-house, I think he'd be a very good selection. I, I raised the, the point with him that he is the producer that worked with them on the most continuous um, sequential projects, with it being four. You know, Bob's three were spread out over um, 16 years, 15 years. Yeah. Uh, Eddie's, you know, he did, what, uh, three in a row? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Two, two and a half. Two and a half. Yeah, so... He, he's got a place in history that 
you know, is, is very solid, very secure. I think he, he knows of that. So um, I think you've all added some questions that, you know, hopefully get an opportunity to ask him, um, you know, maybe at the expo this week, weekend. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So obviously with a hour and a bit interview stuck in the middle of this, I'm, I'm going to wrap this one up right now so that uh, your, our dear listeners don't go crazy with their fast forward and stop and down down likes and all that but I, I just do want to mention obviously michael is going to be at the indie expo and he is offering riaa awards for creatures mm-hmm. um gold award for that and lick it up gold and platinum are exclusively available to members of the kiss army through kissaddiction.com he's going to have some at the expo he's also going to have photos for signing and as you heard me ask him or Maybe that wasn't in the, the, the final edit, but uh, pretty much if you bring up a copy of Creatures, he'll sign it for you if you want, or Killers, or any of the albums that he worked on. He's more than happy to engage with fans. So again, that website is kissaddiction.com, and they're, they're handling the exclusive um, special merchandise for Michael. Um, and, you know, who knows? Maybe he'll uh, decide to go on a cruise again this year. It's uh, and enjoy all these things that are happening is what this really does bring to mind. In in the past year, Vinny's come back out of the the woodwork, and Michael James Jackson has decided, you know, that he's ready to be in public and tell his story. Um, it's it's all good, you know. Enjoy these people where when you get the opportunity to meet them and maybe thank them for a music that means something to your life, because uh, they don't have to. So. I, I do want to, again, thank Keith LaRue for helping set up this interview and uh, getting me in contact with Michael. And obviously, I want to thank Michael for everything that you went through in that interview. It was a challenge, and I appreciate your determination to see it through and uh, answer my questions as well as you could. So very much appreciate it. So for now, from Lonnie, from Ken, and Mark and myself, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you for spending time listening to the Kiss FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you'd like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Spreaker, or wherever you've listened to the show. We hope you'll join us again.